Testament documents claim that Jesus Christ actually resurrected from the dead. But is this just a matter of faith? Or are there good historical grounds for believing this event? Today, we'll talk to a noted expert on this topic. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. This is a program that examines cultural and spiritual issues in the light of reason and evidence. And we have resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find articles, books, and past shows, including Dr. Zukerin's interviews with experts on a wide variety of topics. So go to evidenceandanswers.org and check it out. And Pat, today we'll finish up with part two in our series on the resurrection. Yes, thanks, Kevin. I'm here with Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the foremost defenders of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's written numerous scholarly articles and numerous books on the subject. He has a PhD from Michigan State University and is the distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And he has debated on this subject with scholars from all over the world. So it's a privilege to have him once again. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gary Habermas. Thank you, Patrick. I want to finish up on our discussion last week with your debate with maybe the man who was the foremost atheist philosopher of our generation, Dr. Anthony Flew. His conversion to theism is very, very significant. He was a titan amongst atheist philosophers in his conversion. That's very significant. And you were debating on the resurrection here. And one of the things that Dr. Anthony Flew had to provide was some kind of explanation for the data that we have. What explanation does he have? And he presented that it was probably some kind of grief-related vision. Right. Explain that, and how did, you, uh, how did you answer him on that? He's changed a little bit over the years. We first dialogued in 1985 at Liberty University in another book, which is uh, long out of print. He didn't want to pick a naturalistic theory, and that was sort of the distinction I was making in the last show between IPAR and a posteriori objections before and after the facts. And I kept pushing. I was saying, well, if you're a naturalist, you know, you'd want to, you want to pick a naturalistic theory. And finally he said, oh, well, whatever, I'll pick hallucinations. And then for the rest of the first book, the first debate, we argued about hallucinations. Well, this, this one here happened years later, and he, instead of taking kind of the old hallucination view, he kind of centered on death visions. It's, it's pretty well known, depending on who you read, that a, a fairly decent percentage of people, between, say, a quarter and a half, who experience the death of a loved one, especially in a lot of experiments, it's especially, say, an elderly spouse. And many times all they know is, is life with this other person for 50, 60, 70 years. And when the person is taken in uh, death, they frequently report that they see the person in a very, very vivid dream. or It's a very natural thing. In fact, psychiatrists will even say, uh, they'll often say, you know, it's an, it's an hallucination, but don't worry about it. It's a simple one. It's an understandable one. It's what we call grief, which, which is an interesting aside because we talked last interview about the disciples having similar experiences of grief and depression and so on when they when they had Jesus torn away from them. So Tony Flew thought he followed a couple other people who've said this and they say that the the resurrection is not normal hallucinations, but it's these grief 
related visions where people say they've seen somebody. So I responded not unlike what I did earlier with hallucinations. And I, you know, I, I, I said a variety of things in answer to it. But if this is a, a, a sort of a make-believe appearance of a loved one who has recently died, in this case Jesus, then it's a construction of my own mind, and we shouldn't be sharing these events. Two of us should not see the same picture, let alone ten of us, or let alone all the women on the way to the tomb, or whatever. So the fact that several people see him is an issue. The fact that the tomb is empty, for example. As I ask my students, I'll say, hallucination or grief visions, is that a full tomb view or an empty tomb view? Well, it's a full tomb view, because if you think they just saw non-factual appearances, well, the body should be in the tomb. But the body wasn't in the tomb, so you have to explain that. And then last interview, we talked about uh, Peter and James. What do you do with skeptics who surely are not in the right frame of mind as unbelievers and ardent critics, and in Paul's case, a persecutor? Why would he manufacture pictures of the hallucinations of the person that he is, is most against? So there's a lot of issues. Um, I think the biggest problem is the number of appearances and the times and places. You know, the hallucination theory has been a real popular one, but have there been any alternative theories worth considering in all the debates that you've had? If one's making a comeback, it's probably that sort of general category of they saw something that really wasn't there, whatever you want to call that. Unfortunately for them, it's popular, but no theory has more refutations than this one. I mean, there are six to eight major refutations, and another pile of them, if you just want to get some considerations, you know, lesser considerations against them. So someone who takes that view has more hurdles to overcome than anybody else. One of the things I should mention, Patrick, is if the person says, well, you know, they could have thought they saw something had been wrong, we're right back to the, to the beginning of last interview. Because why do they make that move? You have to ask, why do they think the disciples could have seen something that, you know, through no fault of their own, they weren't trying to mistreat anybody or lie, or they really thought they saw Jesus, but they didn't. Why do they make that move? It's because the evidence is so good that Jesus died on the cross, and afterwards the disciples believe they saw him alive. Almost every critic today admits that the disciples think they totally were convinced that they saw Jesus alive. That's how good the evidence is, that hallucination is just about the only thing left open to them. Dr. Habermas, how convincing are your arguments for the resurrection? I mean, some people will say, well, you know, all the evidence you present won't convince anybody. Well, if a person said that to me, I'd say, look, convincing you is not a test for truth. The, the, the question of whether I'm right or not is not determined by whether you're convinced. In fact, what keeps you from being convinced in your heart but just staring at me and saying, you're not making any grounds with me, just to be talking, just to be saying those words? Uh, There's no test for truth that says I have to convince them. In fact, to turn it around, what if I said, well, look, if that's a test for truth, then atheism can't be true, because you're not convincing me. Now, nobody argues Nobody. I mean, think of all the political talk shows you've ever seen. Nobody ever argues that if I can't convince you, if a Republican doesn't become a Democrat after this dialogue on so-and-so's political talk show, 
then you don't have any good arguments. Well, that doesn't follow. So uh, it's not a question of does somebody convert. It's a question of can somebody explain the data. The qu- it's a question of who has the best evidence. And evidence for the resurrection, I think there's nothing like it in the history of religions. You know, in one of your articles you wrote, I believe it's contending with Christianity's critics. It was answering the new atheist arguments. You talked about a resurrection timeline. Sure. That goes back to that argument we discussed from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And basically what I said was, let's just talk in round numbers. Let's put the cross at 30 A.D. If somebody wants to say 33, that's fine. But doesn't, if, if anything, it helps to put it at 33 because it shortens the time distance. But, but let's say, let's put the cross at 30 A.D. Let's put Paul's letter at plus 20 or 25. Paul came to Corinth at about 20 or 21. That's about 51 A.D. He writes 1 Corinthians about 25 years after the cross, about 55 A.D. So you have a little timeline here that's only 25 years long. Imagine a 25-year time slot from the cross to 1 Corinthians. Paul writes that book about 55 A.D. or plus 25 years from the cross. He's there in person, as he explains in the first two verses, giving them this message about plus 20. Actually, it's about 21. But he's there about 51 A.D. and gives the message. But he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that this is the message I received from somebody else. It's critics who popularize this argument, not evangelicals. Critics think that Paul probably received this message when he visited with James and especially Peter, described in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. There's a little Greek word there where Paul says, I got to know them. We usually slaughter it in English. We say, get acquainted with. But the Greek is actually interviewed. The, the, the Greek, the word is histor, H-I-S-T-O-R. It's the word, it's the Greek word from which we get our word history. And it's usually translated in uh, some major studies in the first, uh, about the first century. It's usually translated to interview or to entertain a person's views, to dialogue with them, so on. So, Critics think that Paul was dialoguing with them about the nature of the gospel, and this is when he obtained the information. He knew about his appearance, but this is when he obtained the information about their appearance, namely, once again, Peter and James. So they put that event when he receives this message at about 35 A.D. or plus 5. Not going too fast here. Once again, that's the cross at ground zero, or 30 A.D., 1 Corinthians is plus 25, that, 25 years later, that's 55 A.D. He went to Corinth about 21 A.D., about 51. But now he's getting this message about five years later, about 35 A.D. And then he says just verses later, what is in our Bible, Galatians 2.1, but in the New Testament, the original New Testament, Paul did not write with chapters and verses. So it's just a few verses later. Paul says, I went back up to Jerusalem 14 years later, and set on the table, he said, the gospel I was preaching to make sure we were on the same page, make sure I was on the same page with the other disciples. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, they added nothing to me. Now, critics do not question, generally speaking, they do not question that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and Galatians. I'm not arguing they're inspired or anything. I'm just saying Paul wrote these, and he's not lying, and critics allow that. And uh, so what Paul's saying is, I got this material at about plus 5, at plus 14, 14 years after the cross, I went back up there and got a confirmation of this again. So what I argue in this timeline is that the message of the resurrection begins about 30 A.D. 
But we have the reports from a very early date from what I call the Big Four, from Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and John. I mean, there's not a bigger name in the early church, and yet these guys are early eyewitnesses. They're the ones who are willing to give their life for the message who, and who were in the position to know what happened. The fact that we can get it so tight back to the beginning with the guys who were there, with the guys who turned the world upside down, this is the single most influential argument on the resurrection. You know, you've had a 20-year relationship with uh, Dr. Anthony Flew, and right. he has recently, just a few years ago, converted to theism. He's not a Christian, but he believes in the existence of a God. Tell us about that journey. I wrote about it in the uh, Philosophia Christi, the journal, and I think it was entitled My Pilgrimage from Atheism to Theism. At the time, he called it theism because he said he didn't think people enough people understand a deism. But it turns out that once that word deism got out there, the public did understand it, and now he uses the word deism. But what he did was he espoused uh, belief in God, and he said two major arguments got him there. One was Aristotle's cosmology, which, which most people just recognize as as kind of a, a, a particular form of philosophical cosmology, Aristotle being very, very influential, especially down through the Middle Ages into the present time. And the other thing that really convinced him was what we call intelligent design today. So intelligent design, scientific arguments, and Aristotle. Of the two, now he didn't say this so much anymore, but in the early days, he said Aristotle was the stronger argument. Philosophy first, science second. And for those two reasons, he came to believe in God. He doesn't believe in a resurrection, but he did say in that same interview that the resurrection is the best miracle claim in the history of religions. And uh, we also talk about life after death in that article, and he says he's more open to it than he's been in the past, and things like that. So he makes a number of amazing concessions. In fact, he calls Jesus a great moral philosopher, and he calls Paul a great philosophical mind. So he sees Paul and, and Jesus as being major philosophical figures of importance in the early church and the history of human thought. Yes, you know, he speaks highly of Christianity over, say, the other monotheistic religions of Judaism and Islam, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He does. Now, now he never criticizes Judaism much, and I think maybe one of the reasons is that his wife is uh, Jewish. And I heard him call his daughters one time. He called them Jewesses. So, uh, and you know, he also just thinks it was a real sad chapter in our history, and once again, there's that respect for history, but he thinks what happened during World War II in the death camps was just a really sad thing to do with the, with the Jews. He, he's very critical of Nazi and communist forms of uh, government. Well, uh, I mean, that just comes from studying the data and from trusting facts, but in spite of all that, he's very, very respectful of Christianity. I think he would never treat Jesus disrespectfully. Now, he might say he doesn't believe certain things, but he thinks Jesus is a great thinker. I might just add here, you know, he, he, was, he became an atheist in his teen years. His father was an evangelical pastor with a doctor's degree from Oxford University. And he was raised in, uh, Tony was raised in Cambridge. Well, Dr. Habermas, what influence do you think your arguments on the resurrection had upon him? Tony and I are legitimately, we're good friends, but I would never presume upon him and say, well, so Tony, uh, I take it I've been a very influential person in your life, right? I mean, I've just never said anything like that to him. So 
I don't really know. On one angle, you could say uh, it must have had some effect. He's, he was never disrespectful of Jesus, but he's come a long way on that regard, and he's, he's open. He says in his book, There is a God. He says, uh, that's what he did with Roy Varghese, you, you mentioned earlier. He says, God's never spoken to me before, but he said, one day I might hear a voice, and it might say, can you hear me now? in the words of the uh, popular American commercial. And I asked him, I said, do you, do you really think that? And he said, well, he said, all I can tell you is it hasn't happened, but I'm open, and if God wants to call me, he can call me. And that's probably the last time I asked about it, after the book came out, but the one about I believe in, I mean, there is a God, but he, he he's an open guy, and I, you know, I don't know what's going on in his heart, but I've never heard him say he thinks Christianity is true. He states he doesn't believe in life after death, and he didn't feel perhaps the resurrection and the evidence for it was convincing, but he did admit something very interesting. He said near-death experiences constitute strong evidence for possibly life after death. Yeah, and he'd, he'd probably get that word possible in there. He's not going to say they prove an afterlife. Or the, I mean, some days he'll talk to me like he thinks, he's talked to me like, uh, wow, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This is, this is good evidence. Then other days he'll say, eh, I don't know, I, I don't think it's so good. So he'll go back and forth on whether he thinks it's, it's very good evidence. But, but he's clearly told me before that it's, it's very challenging evidence. And I think that it's part of the Christian's quiver, you might say, of arrows. I mean, we've got, generally have two sets of arguments. Arguments for theism, which say a certain sort of God exists. And then we have arguments specifically for Christianity. And I think near-death experiences belong very clearly, like morality and like arguments for God and things like that. They, they're in that general category. And uh, Tony's come a long way in that category. He doesn't believe in an afterlife, but he believes in God, and he has a very high view of morality. Yes, explain to us near-death experiences. I mean, what are they and ex- exactly what do they prove? They don't prove there's a heaven or a hell, but what do they prove? I've been following these second only in my on my own career, second only to evidence for the resurrection. I've been studying your death experiences for uh, about thirty five years, and uh, there are dozens. I mean, I think that's safe to say dozens. That that may be a little conservative, a little low figure, but there are dozens of near death experiences which are are evidential in nature. Some of them are very evidential, and what you have. I mean, I just make up a story, but um, you might have a case where a person has no heartbeat and or no brain activity. I mean, we know, for example, that if you have a a real heart attack, I don't mean like, uh, you know, borderline phenomena, but if you have a real heart attack, um, you go brain dead in about uh, 11 or 12 seconds. doesn't take very long. So if a person is in the throes of of a real, you know, heart attack, You've got no brain and no heart activity after a relatively short period of time. And some of these people in near-death states, they will report that, um, you know, they might be six or eight feet above their body and they kind of look around them. Well, anybody says, yeah, right. Uh, You know, that, yeah, and I'll tell you another one. You know, I'll sell you a bridge. But the point is that these people who say they're six, eight feet above their body, and sometimes they kind of go up they go up higher. Sometimes they kind of wander outside the building where their body's laying. Uh, they'd be a few feet away. And they'll see something which you can't see from inside that building where their body is. 
but they'll report something. I mean, um, I'll just make up something, but I mean, like a car accident or something they can that can be reported, and we can get data later that indicate that what they report happened after they had their heart attack, but before they were resuscitated. And when you get some of these, some of them report things from a distance. I mean, there's a few reports of things that happened, purportedly happened miles away. And uh, you say, well, how can they do that? And you say, I don't know, but it's accurate. Here's the report we have. And they couldn't possibly have known that from inside the room where their body was uh, out of commission, you know, no heart, no brain activity. So when you say not evidence for heaven or hell, I would agree in the sense that it mostly is about evidence for things that are minutes after death and relatively close. You know, we don't know what happens two years later after the person dies. There are some strange reports that that can work in that direction, but that would take a lot of time to explain. But for the most part, these are reports of things that happen from a few minutes to 40 minutes after the reported death. And then you start thinking about, does this person have consciousness beyond their heart, beyond their brain? And that's more of a religious view. Hence that general argument I said earlier, where you get God and morality and life after death, which many religions share. Tell us about your website and other resources people can go to to get more information on the things that you're presenting here. Well, thanks for asking. My my website is is very simple, GaryHabermas.com, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. And listeners can look at articles and a few books and excerpts from books and uh, video lectures, uh, audio lectures. And, and really, they're mostly on the topics that we've mentioned here. They're on the resurrection or they're on near-death experiences. I also have a number of things on the subject of doubt, religious questions. What do we do when we question our faith? We got into that a little bit, you know, when someone says, well, you haven't convinced me. Well, what's the relationship between belief and evidence? A lot of that stuff on the website, a person can take it, look at it, watch it. Great. Briefly summarize for us the importance of the resurrection. This is something that you've studied extensively. It's something that you've debated all over the world. Tell us, what is the importance of the resurrection? Uh, Patrick, I appreciate you asking that. Uh, It's a question I don't often get in interviews, but it's a very, very important question. I mean, there's got to be a reason why in the New Testament the resurrection is not just you know, history, history, evidence, evidence, evidence. In the New Testament, it is the center of almost every major doctrine in the Christian faith. In other words, we believe these doctrines because of the resurrection. And it's the center of most areas of practice in the Christian's life. So the resurrection is not just, when when you think of the resurrection, it's not just apologetics, evidences for the faith, and so on. It is also the center of the gospel, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's also, as many publications have said, it's the reason we're moral. Paul says it himself in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the reason we're moral. It's the reason we worship. It's the reason we believe in in heaven. We believe in rightness and wrongness and justice. It's the reason we do what we do. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, because of the resurrection, he says, stand firm, don't fall away. He said, secondly, get involved, get to work. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And what I find very interesting about that is the very next verse, 16, 1, he's taken up an offering for poor believers. So it's sort of like saying the resurrection's true. Then he says, you're going to be raised if you're in Christ. Then he says, do something about it. He says, get your wallets out. we got some people in need. So Paul sees an argument, a direct line, 
from the truth of the resurrection to our behavior in the current world. Those are just some of the areas. But most of all, we've talked about it already, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, our loved ones have died in vain. Well, conversely, if Christ has been raised from the dead, our loved ones who are alive in Christ are precisely alive in him. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says it's far better to die and be with Christ even than it is to be alive. So our future existence and the the blissfulness of it, what what makes heaven heaven, is due to the resurrected Jesus. I, I can't think of a more blessed truth. And by the way, the New Testament says believers will be raised like Christ. That's taught in the New Testament almost 20 times. I mean, how many times can the New Testament writers make the point before we get centrality of the resurrection? You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the foremost scholars on the resurrection. And for our audience in Hawaii, Dr. Habermas will be out there at the fourth annual Hawaii Apologetics Conference, along with Kirby Anderson and myself. February 19th to 21st, we'll be on the island of Oahu, and then the following weekend on the island of Maui. So we invite you all to be there to hear him and Kirby Anderson speak, some of the top guys in apologetics today. So Dr. Habermas, thanks for being on the show with us. Great time. Thanks, especially for those good questions. Just allow us to talk about some really important things here. I had a good time with you. Well, thank you for being with us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugarin. We hope you got some good information, and we have more at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available free and for purchase. And by the way, when you purchase our resources at evidenceandanswers.org, you keep this show on this station and help us to expand. And you may also want to partner with us. Just click the Donate button on our front page. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.